This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. A lovely 17-year-old crossing the street near her school. A Zoomer couple sitting in traffic. An 81-year-old man struck by two cars, all of them killed in just over the last week. There are more people on the roads driving more than they have during the earlier part of the pandemic, but there has to be more behind this. The CAA says it's distracted driving as the main cause of the problem. What are you finding on the road as a pedestrian, as a driver, as a cyclist? 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Toronto City Councillor Gord Perks, Pedestrian Safety Advocate Albert Cole and Teresa DeFelice, Assistant Vice President, Government and Community Relations for CAA South Central Ontario. Thank you all for joining us. Hello. Hello. Uh, I'd like to start with uh, Councillor Perks. You're the counselor for that terrible crash. Uh, that happened on Parkside uh, just it was just over a week ago where a couple in their car sitting in traffic were killed in what turned out to be a, a multi-vehicle crash from a speeding car. Yes. Yes, actually, just earlier, uh, we, we had a vigil marking the, the one week anniversary of that having happened. Uh, a lovely couple who actually you know, live not far from where I do, lost their lives uh, because the city of Toronto's streets are unsafe and cars go too fast and we don't design our street network for safety. We design it for speed. And and uh, what do you think would have been necessary on that particular stretch of road? Well, I've been working with the local community on that stretch of road for several years now. We've been able to get a few little incremental approval improvements, but whenever we try to do something major, uh, we run up against the way that streets and roads are regulated in the city of Toronto and, and frankly, right across Canada. They're designed to move traffic. They're not designed to be safe. Okay, let's uh, bring in Teresa DeFelice. You have a new survey on vulnerable road users, and and what did you find in a nutshell? Thank you. Yes, uh, we conducted a survey uh, earlier this year around uh, what's called vulnerable road users, such a a difficult term, but really this is about uh, people who are on the roads, mostly, you know, pedestrians, cyclists. Uh, motorcycles are con- considered in that category. Although most people, some people put drivers in that category as well when it comes to unsafe road situ- conditions and situations. And that, you know, basically, you know, people who are pedestrians, cyclists, motorcyclists are most at risk. Um, you know, the main findings are that, uh, you know, we need to be doing better. There's a lot of distraction that's going on both uh, inside and outside of the vehicle. And, and that's probably the, the biggest safety concern and the biggest concern on the minds of Ontarians when it comes to getting around our roads. Um, Albert Cole, uh, do you agree? We, we just heard from Councillor Perks. He says it's the design of the road. And we've heard from the CAA, and they're saying it's a lot of distraction. And I have to tell you, when I drive, I see a lot of distraction, a lot of impatience, um, and a lot of uh, obstacles, construction. So where do you see the biggest problems? Well, right now what we're seeing in, in Toronto, and I completely agree with uh, Gord, we, we have a system of roads that was built uh, to move cars fast. And uh, what's changed now is uh, our values. Uh, we have a lot more people walking and cycling. In fact, the majority of people in Toronto now identify 
walking, cycling, and transit as their main mode of transportation. So it's not surprising that our values have changed. In other words, we no longer accept that people are dying and being seriously injured on the roads. And and just to give you a a quick uh, statistic on that, I mean, two years ago before the pandemic, 64 people were killed on our roads. Well, in 1965, and some of your listeners will remember, you know, that time, there were 135 people killed in our city and a much smaller population. So what's changed is that today we don't say, as we did then, well, that's just a cost of a modern transportation system. We're willing to accept that. We don't accept that anymore, and it's partly because more people are choosing alternatives to the car, but the, uh, the roads still reflect our old an outdated way of doing things, which is to move as many cars as fast as possible. And the result of that is that death and serious injury. Well, you know, uh, driving around, I see changes in design, right, which are, I'm sure, intended to make things safer, but sometimes are very confusing. And uh, it's hard to imagine that they actually do make things safer. Well, if I could see. jump in there, yeah. Libby, yeah. there's an important principle here, which is if you design the roads so that the driver doesn't have to worry about anything, the driver goes faster. This is well known. Every transportation engineer in the world will tell you that. If you design the streets so the, the, the driver doesn't just have a clear, straight shot, you have to slow down and pay more attention, and it creates a safer condition. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I've seen sort of added things, not just uh, dangerous to drivers. You you put an added ramp that people can't see. <laughs> yeah, Libby, uh, yeah. like a lot of the uh, the problem, as Gord mentions, uh, and I've we've seen that. You know, I went to the University of Toronto in the early '80s, and there's a, a crossing there across Queens Park that we always had to uh, look out for. It's a very fast um, street, the Queens Park uh, Crescent. And so recently, they put in two new um, streetlights, and, uh, and and that's obviously, you know, going to slow down the motor traffic, make it safer for people to cross their millions of students that cross there, you know, over the last decade. But, of course, that costs money. So, so a, a traffic signal might cost something like $250,000 a single, you know, to put a single one in at a new intersection, uh, whereas we're spending $20 million a year on uh, Vision Zero. Uh, so, so, you know, the, the, the numbers don't match. We can put in traffic lights everywhere, but if we did that, um, you know, we'd start asking, well, maybe, you know, so many cars. The answer is trying to reduce the number of cars. And that is what we're talking about because, of course, our climate emergency dictates that we start talking about solutions like getting having fewer cars on the road, getting more people to walk and cycle. That means taking away space from the motorists, which, again, makes it uh, – slows down our roads and makes our roads safer. Is that, uh, is that part of the reason that cars are not, there? there is less space for cars, that cars are, the drivers are not used to it or not willing to accept it? Is that the problem, Councillor Perks? Um, no, I, I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is that uh, as much as we are making some improvements. We have thousands of kilometers of city streets that were designed for people in cars to go fast, not designed for any other road users. And we haven't caught up with that yet. I don't, I don't believe for a second uh, that uh, building accommodations for cyclists and pedestrians and taking lanes away from cars makes the road more dangerous. It makes it more safe. If I may, uh, uh, you know, yeah. I think Ontarians are actually agreeing that, you know, some of the, the infrastructure changes, at least in our survey and those who drive, infrastructure changes are, are being seen in a positive light. Uh, I think Ontarians recognize that there's room for more, uh, you know, even with the cycling infrastructure, right? Drivers feel comfortable when, you know, there is that infrastructure and they know where they're supposed to be and they see where the cyclist is supposed to be. So things like separated Bike lanes uh, do tend to get support uh, from from people from a safety perspective. They can be difficult. I agree with my panelists that it can be difficult to bring in for lots of reasons. Um, and that some of the improvements that are being made are, are heavily supported, like automated vehicle enforcement. You know, we don't love the idea of a camera taking pictures, but it is having an effect. It is making people more aware of their, their driving behaviors. Things like um, pedestrian signals first. 
at intersections before a green light for the vehicles. This is something I live in the city of Toronto. I'm seeing this more and more at many intersections. Why does it take so long to bring that in? Well, I think, you know, there's always different uh, initiatives that are coming forward, different strategies that are coming forward. Um, you know, this is this is just change and it's, there are processes. Um, but I think one of the other things that we saw in our survey, but I think is part of the challenge is people don't know enough about these things when they're coming in. I mean, we do an annual cycling survey and, and most people don't know what the new pavement markings are. And some of these pavement markings like the Shero have been around for you know, over a decade, maybe two decades, if, if I go back and really think about when we started using them. And and so there is there is a, a, a challenge that you've got people who are working on it, like road safety advocates, like the transportation engineers and the planners of the city, and in any city. Um, and then, you know, they're far ahead of sort of what they're trying to implement and do. But there is a, a gap in terms of getting that messaging out to the people who are actually using these streets and the infrastructure. And then, of course, we have to also deal with things like behavior, like being distracted and courtesy and, and all of those other things on top of it. But part of it is there's a lack of knowledge, and therefore then there's a lack of, I think, courtesy or respect, and that's showing in our numbers as well, uh, on, on how to use the infrastructure and why this is happening. Yeah, I mean, it, if, if you, it, it can be pretty wild out there. Uh, we have to take another break. We will be back with more uh, on this, and we will also be taking uh, your calls and your comments on this when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about road safety in the light of four terrible, fatal crashes in just over the last week. We're talking about a CAA survey which finds that people think distracted driving. Distracted drivers are the worst problems, but they also cite distracting pedestrians and cyclists and motorists. So, uh, you know, it looks like we all have to pull up our socks a bit here, but especially drivers who uh, are in a vehicle that can kill people. Let's take some calls from the audience. We've got Ingrid in North York. Hello, Ingrid. Hi, Libby. Uh, really happy to uh, talk to you. Um, this is my first time ever calling. Oh, there you go. You've got the first time bell. Thanks all for right. calling. Okay, thank you. I have a couple of points I want to make about this issue. It's been on my mind. Um, the first one, I think we should raise the age for young drivers, new drivers, to 18, because I don't think a 16-year-old in most cases has the maturity level to um, to be driving a car. It's a huge responsibility, and, and obviously uh, it can be disastrous uh, when they're not mature enough. Also, I think we should um, slow down and obey the posted speed limits because you have more control over the vehicle when you are driving at a slower pace. Um, And also, be extra careful when you're making your turns at intersections, watching for cyclists and pedestrians, because, um, you know, that is going to help you a lot. and don't forget to check your blind spots and cover your brake going all, through intersections. All good it's advice. Good. Thanks very yeah. much for that, Ingrid. Okay, uh, Sam in Toronto. Hello, Sam. Hey, uh, good to talk to you for a while. I haven't been uh, around, so, oh. you know, good to see you healthy and happy. Thank you. And, you too. Uh, one, one thing, uh, Libby, I wanted to say, it's part of it is, uh, I think, this whole issue, we talked about it before, is city instigated, you know, like um, the rate of construction compared to pre-pandemic, well, we are still in pandemic, but pre-pandemic when the roads were empty and they pushed for new projects. If you actually work, uh, work and drive in the city for a living, you know, like because I have to go to different projects and stuff, you see the amount of construction. Every major road has a construction sign, construction going on in it. Okay, plus the private. Um, you know, projects, which is done by condos and high-rises and whatever. So this adds to frustration. If you put a cat in a cage, uh, he wants to get out. You know, part of this stress, I can see a lot of angry drivers last last couple of years. A lot of angry drivers. You see them. They just 
desperate way to get out of the jam, you know. So when city has no limit on giving permits for construction, all these projects that is going on, and is like clogging the city, plus these patios that is coming up. I'm not saying that it's not the fault of drivers who are like, you know, uh, you know, distracted and everything. That's an excellent point. But what I'm saying, part of it can be uh, avoided, you know, by just right planning, good planning, and city watches for all this, plus the schools are back. So if when you add all these issues, you know, and it becomes to uh, explosive points that, uh, you know, things happen. So Sam, those are to plan, plan uh, due to the season, you know. You just go out there. You see dump truck after dump truck after dump truck. There's thousands of projects going on in this city, and there's so much that the city can take, you know. I don't know if it's greed or mismanagement or whatever it is. Nobody talks about these permits that the city, city is giving to people. Okay, to Sam, people. I'm going to run that by uh, the councillor. Um I had read that there were extra construction permits given out during the pandemic and the, the city was going to scale them back. Uh, what about that as a factor? Uh, well, two things. Um, no, we weren't giving out extra permits. The province uh, changed the hours of operation that uh, builders were allowed to, to operate under. So, no, we haven't been getting out extra permits. But I have to say, Libby, that, that I don't agree with the premise. I don't agree with the premise. The, the problem isn't isn't bad drivers or angry drivers. It's bad roads. Yes, it's true. You get frustrated if there are a lot of obstacles while you're trying to drive. But again, the evidence is very, very clear. If you remove all the obstacles, people drive faster and more people get hurt. They, as long as we're beginning the conversation by asking, how do we make it easier for people to drive? we are creating more danger. The, the simple fact of the matter is the only path out is if we start to design streets for uh, what your CAA guest described as the vulnerable users, the people who are walking or cycling. And by the way, that's almost all of us. Uh, would think of them first and think of cars last. Teresa DeFelice, do you agree with that? Or do you think that uh, all of this construction is uh, partly frustrating drivers and leading to some bad behavior on the roads? I think that, um, you know, City of Toronto is a, a particular uh, interesting microcosm of, of one of, of a larger thing, right? So there, there has been a movement to look at, you know, taking it away, stop looking at behavior, as, as the counselor alluded to, and look at the, the, the planning, the infrastructure, and how you design things to make it less of an, a danger. Um, you know, I, I can hear from your caller, and, and obviously we hear it as well, there is a, a level of frustration uh, when it takes people longer to get around, uh, and yes, you know, probably more so by driving. And the, the fact is, the city of Toronto is really a busy city. It's got huge volume, you know, the problems sometimes that are seen in the city of Toronto uh, are not always mirrored in, in other parts of the province. Um, and that's where you start looking at what are some of the other influences. But the, the reason why we talked about distra- there's distracted driving coming up in this survey is, yeah, most people don't know or understand a lot about infrastructure. Uh, and like I said, when we ask them, they, they see improvements being made and they're supportive of improvements. But most drivers, most, you know, cyclists, pedestrians uh, can, can handle and, and take it down at a personal level to behavior because everyone understands behavior. They may not understand transportation engineering. So this is why we're saying some of these, uh, you know, the fact is, is, yes, the council's right. Everybody walks in cycles. And during the pandemic, we're seeing even more of that and more people expect to do that as things, you know, get back to normal, if, you know, for, to use the term. So we, we have to figure out how to have all these people coexist together um, and, and do it so that we aren't seeing, you know, the tragedies that we saw this past week. We're fortunate. We have some of the safest roads in Ontario in, in the world, but we still could do better. And I, and I think that's, that's the objective. Okay. Let us take a call from Anne in Etobicoke. Hello, Anne. Hi, how are you? Fine. Go ahead. 
Yes, I live in the Kingsway, and what I find is pedestrians crossing on a controlled intersection. The drivers are intimidating, in my opinion. That's how I feel when I'm crossing the road, the pedestrians, because they don't let the pedestrians get too far out of the way before they complete their turn. Hmm, yeah. Whether it's the right turn or left turn. Sometimes um, you're still in the lane or just stepped outside the lane when the driver makes the turn and completes the turn. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm finding here. Are you talking about walking or cycling? Walking. Do you do you feel unsafe in your neighborhood? I, I do. I do. I do. Yeah, particularly at Royal York and Bloor and uh, Montgomery and Bloor. Yeah, absolutely. And what would you like to see there? Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't have any... I, uh, just better behavior on the parts of drivers. You know, like just... Let the person get out of the way. Make sure they're in the other lane before you complete the turn. Um, Go ahead. Sorry. I've I've seen an incident um, about a year or so ago at uh, Dundas in in Islington where somebody was crossing the road on the light. And she was intimidated trying to cross the road. She had the green light. Cars were turning off of Bernathorpe onto Dundas. She started walking across the road. She had the green light. And cars are going around her, in front of her, and behind her. Oh God! Yeah, that would be very scary. Uh, um, yeah. Anna, I don't know. We all have to be extra careful now. Thank you for okay. bringing that to our attention. Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean it, it's uh, it's interesting, Albert, because uh, we're just talking about design versus behavior. But you're right; what people see is behavior. And uh, I think there's no question that uh, behavior could improve things. Yeah, yeah, there's no, no doubt about uh, that. But we also know uh, people will uh, behave in all sorts of ways and people will make mistakes. That's whether it's uh, drivers, pedestrians or cyclists. And that's, you know, what we've been talking about, uh, designing roads. Uh, what we did in the 50s and 60s, we designed roads for speed. And that cost a huge amount of money doing that. And now it's going to cost a lot of money designing for people for people on bikes, for people uh, walking, uh, for the community. And that's going to cost a lot of money. And what I mentioned before, we're spending $20 million a year when, in fact, we should be talking about spending, you know, 10 times that amount per year if we're going to make a dent in this in any time soon. And uh, right now our timelines are so stretched out with the small amount of money that we're spending that we're going to continue to see these tragedies uh, for, uh, for many years to come. I'm going to take a quick call from Gail in High Park. Hello, Gail. Hi. I just wanted to to mention in Bloor Street now with the uh, cyclists there and the parking on Bloor and uh, one lane of traffic, and there's also a lot of seniors' residences along on Bloor Street. Right. What happens in the case of an emergency with the first responders? How are they supposed to do that, that handle that? Have you seen a problem there? I have, because, you know, they have to block the whole street then, you know, in order to stop and and deal with an emergency. But they can't pull over, so and people can't get around, so what happens? There are some concerns about emergency vehicles getting through. I know that on a lot of those streets where they have parking and bike lanes, it's also can be, you have to get like way out to be able to see in the right. first place. Um, well, thanks for bringing our attention to that as well. Uh, we are just about out of time, so I'm going to give our guests 20 seconds each, starting with Albert. Uh, I would just uh, reiterate that, uh, you know, we've got to show the same dedication that we showed the same commitment, uh, you know, when the values were different, when we wanted to move cars and trucks as fast as possible, we have to show the same commitment now uh, to road safety. And that means undoing some of the stuff we did uh, uh, so many years ago. Councillor Gord Perks. Um, Albert makes a very important point about resources. I just want to underline it by reminding everybody that the reason there's so little money for making our existing streets safe is we're spending so much money on rebuilding highways we don't need. The gardener comes to mind. The budget for transportation at the City of Toronto to make improvements on our streets has been dropping every year because we're trying to save a minute or two travel time for people driving in from Scarborough. It doesn't add up. We have to make safety the priority.
Okay, and I'm sorry that is all the time we have. Thank you, Teresa DeFelice, Councillor Gord Perks, and Albert Cole. That's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. If you could not get through or you have something else you want to talk about, that is your day, audience, to talk about what you want to talk about. And that's all the time we have now. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Less than an hour ago, Christian Freeland unveiled a package of measures to replace a whole suite of pandemic relief programs, which are set to expire on Saturday, as you heard in Bob's news. Now, we are still working through it. There was no technical briefing, no paperwork, so we need to make sure that we have it all correct. But As you also heard in Bob's news, it looks like the substitute for wage and rent subsidies are what they're calling a provision for deep losses, 10% support for a 50% loss of revenue, 50% support for a 75% loss of revenue. Uh, And there's also what was called a hiring program at a 50% level. This is my question because uh, I heard this from the translator and I'm not entirely sure it was translated perfectly. So uh, what do you think? Is that good? Also, uh, should there be a kind of local lockdown? Workers affected by it can get $300 a week, but it is the end of the CRB, the Canada Recovery Benefit. So 416 Three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty and let's bring in Franco Terrazano, federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Daniel Safayeni, VP of Policy at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and Larry Isaacs, president of the Firkin Group of Pubs. Hi, everyone. Afternoon. Hello. Hi, Libby. Let's begin with Daniel. And uh, have you been able to drill down on this any more than we have? Unfortunately not. Uh, we don't have any more details than, than you do at this point. So we're still kind of waiting uh, for that. Um, look, I, I think at a high level, uh, we, we understand that these benefits uh, can't go on indefinitely at this level. Um, at the same time, the pain is ongoing for many businesses, particularly in, in certain sectors. Uh, and so the uh, precipitous drop-off or sudden ending of these benefits writ large um, also doesn't really make sense from a policy perspective. Uh, so I, I think we're encouraged by at least some of this direction in terms of continuing these to to a certain extent, particularly for those businesses uh, that are still being impacted by public health measures. Um, so, first of all, so uh, can you remind us the current level of support from the wage and rent subsidies? Yeah, the yeah the wage subsidy is at seventy five percent um and, and the rent subsidy is uh at sixty five percent um and so uh what we've been calling for libby is is to create a replacement program for the Canada emergency wage subsidy and the Canada emergency rent subsidy um that should be exclusively available for businesses that are still hurt uh by pandemic related public health restrictions. Um, and, and that should cover kind of the October to spring 2022 period at, at the very least. And, um, you know, that's very much so in line with what businesses and other sectors had access to uh, until they were permitted to recover. OK, uh, but does what they are offering, does that sound like not enough? 10 percent support for a 50 percent loss of revenue? Yeah, I, I think. I think certainly for, we'll have to take this back and, and take a closer look at it and, and, and do a more thorough consultation with our members. Um, you know, but, you know, it, it should be said that for these sectors that are, are still deeply impacted, um, the support needs to continue because they're not able to resume, uh, full operations. And I'm sure, 
perhaps as Larry might be able to tell you as well, um, the margins for a lot of these industries are still uh, razor thin. Um, and so, you know, the, the supports do need to continue. And what uh, we'd also like to see on that front is uh, some examination of um, loans that have been given either through the Canada Emergency Business Account, uh, the Business Credit Availability Program, or the Highly Effective Sectors Credit Availability Program. All of these were programs. Uh, much of these were loans that were given to businesses that are now highly indebted. And so, you know, for those hardest hit sectors that continue to be impacted by the pandemic, uh, we'd like to see um, debt relief measures being introduced by the federal government for those uh, those sectors. Larry, what do you think uh, at first glance of this? Uh, I 10 percent uh, continuation of wage and rent subsidies for 50 percent loss in, of revenue. Yeah, I would reiterate what Daniel was saying. We just had a chance to to hear this an hour ago. We, we, we're trying to identify how this affects all of us, but he's 100 percent correct. Remember, our industry makes 5 percent profit. We've been handed a whole bunch of loans by the government over the past 20 months, and those loans are now due and payable. 10% against 50% doesn't work because our expenses are much higher than that. The reality that we asked for was the programs to remain in place, 75% rent, 75% wage, until the, the, the spring of next year. The reality of that is our expenses don't equate to that amount of money being given to us. Remember that we were closed for 400 days during this program, and we weren't able to access the wage subsidy program during that time. We had no employees. We were shut down. So we didn't have the ability to catch up any revenue, any any profits to help us pay the debt that is now due. We've asked for the debt to be delayed. How can we make the debt on a 10% salary program? It's not going to be enough money. And remember, as of today, we are yet to be opened at 100% 20 months later. And our friends at MLSE and, and various other places are open and trading as normal. So the math, as we look at it immediately, doesn't make sense for us. So we're hoping that, that when they look at this more deeply, there's going to be a more direct involvement to hospitality and to the small businesses that have been shut for so long. We need more help. Okay, uh, just as a note, there is a special program targeted for tourism recovery, but I don't know that uh, restaurants, I don't think, would be included in that. Let's bring in Franco Terrazano from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, does this look good to you? Well, you know, I also have to acknowledge, like the other panelists, that I haven't had a time to really yeah. my teeth into these announcements, right? So I do have to stay high level. Um, but from a high level, it looks from the taxpayer perspective that this is a good first step from the federal government. And, and just got to acknowledge Finance Minister Christia Freeland. Um, first of all, she acknowledged that these support programs were always sold to Canadians as temporary support. They have to remain temporary. Of course, the federal government is now more than a trillion dollars in debt, which means each Canadian is on the hook for about $30,000 in federal government debt alone. So certainly, we cannot continue to keep rolling all of the programs around and just asking our neighbours as taxpayers to continue to fund it. So just with that being said, um, we do see this as a good first step. And another thing that we want to acknowledge here is that the federal government is looking at making these subsidies more targeted and less expensive. So from a very high level, acknowledging the massive amount of debt that the federal government is, but also acknowledging the fact that the federal government has made life excruciating hard for so many Canadians um, over the last 18, 19 months, especially for business owners. Um, so acknowledging all of that, this does look like a good first step from the federal government. Okay, and the total cost, she said, for the whole thing is $7.4 billion. Franco? Still, yep, still expensive. Um, what, what I would have liked to see, um, of course, I think one of the issues here having this discussion is that we really saw a lack of information from this federal government, right, on this announcement. So we heard that big figure, but what I would have liked to see is, well, what would that be compared to if those subsidies weren't made more targeted? Um, I, I would assume this is some type of cost saving, but we also have to remember 
the, the, the big picture here in terms of federal finances, right? I've been talking about the $1 trillion debt. Well, in 2020 alone, uh, COVID-19 spending costs about $271 billion. Now, that sounds like a huge sum of money. It is a huge sum of money. To put that into context, that would make up more than 70% of the federal government's budget in a normal year. So unfortunately, I can't give you a, a real answer because I don't really know what that extra billions of dollars would compare to if the federal government hadn't made these programs more targeted. Mm, A billion here and a billion there. You know, honestly, I think uh, Christian Freeland went a little rogue because she was talking about something else. We we were expecting something like this, but usually they release it with paper so you can know what you're talking about. I'm sorry if I'm I'm laughing. It's definitely not funny. But I I guess... um, Daniel, like the one of the overarching themes of this is that we're having a huge labor shortage. So how do you balance that uh, with the fact that a lot of businesses are still hurting? And then on the other hand, there are a lot of businesses that did really well during the pandemic. There are businesses uh, like a very large corporate entity, uh, Bell Media, that took a huge amount of wage subsidies and then fired a bunch of people. Well, I, I think this is, Libby, a really important question uh, that you're asking here, because it, it's odd. On one hand, you know, long-term unemployment and jo- job vacancies in Ontario are a reality uh, that have both been increasing relative to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, we have, uh, at, at the same time, high job vacancies and high uh, unemployment. And, you know, uh, a lot has been made. Um, folks have posited and speculated that this is all being driven by the, the CERB and now the CRB. Um, but it, it's actually important to realize that a lot of these labor shortages predated the pandemic, right? A lot of these sectors were confronting uh, major labor shortages prior to the pandemic. Um, Vaccine mandates and other health and safety restrictions in place um, have led to many businesses needing to hire uh, additional staff. I mean, Larry is confronting this in terms of likely in terms of uh, of, uh, enforcing and implementing uh, the vaccine pass here in Ontario. Um, but, but what has also happened here is that, you know, uh, during the lockdown, uh, a lot of folks did exactly uh, what government and people asked of them. Um, unfortunately, with the closure of many restaurants for the prolonged period that Larry's talking about, we, we see uh, in Canada more than 180,000 workers have left the restaurant sectors. Uh, many of them have retrained and taken these retraining programs that the government has provided for. Um, uh, and in the same breath, we see that professional services sector has gained 183 workers since February. And so th- in the same time over the pandemic, we've experienced a significant decline in immigration here in Ontario. That's going to be impacting the labor market. So I think what the Chamber of Commerce would caution against is, you know, okay, we've removed the CRB, but let's not necessarily expect that to result in uh, solving this labor shortage issue that businesses across the board are experiencing, but particularly in a few sectors. Um, Larry, what's your labor situation? Are you able to get the staff that you need, that you want? No, it's horrendous at the moment. And I think exactly what the other two gentlemen are adding to this is that the marketplace is in an extremely inequality of a position from our perspective at this point in time. Remember, you've got Amazon looking to hire 5,000 people right now, and they have the money and the wherewithal to offer extensive wages that we can't play at. We have, we've been put in such a negative position over the last 19 months. Their, their working the, conditions are horrible, though. Whose working condition? Amazon. I understand, but when you're throwing a huge amount of money out there, then people are starting to look at that. It's more money than you can earn in, in some of our businesses, especially for the fact that our sales are down and we can't we can't guarantee shifts at the moment. We still don't know when we're going to be open. So our business model is not really 
something that people are looking at right now as a long-term opportunity. So all these other companies that have used all the government programs, that have made triple the amount of money than they would have made in a normal year, have benefited from it. If you look at the sales that people have had while all the restaurants and small businesses have been closed, they would not have had those sales in a normal year. So when you're looking at a tax perspective and you're looking at the government saying, well, they've dished out all these dollars. We spoke right in the beginning of the pandemic saying all these businesses that have benefited, why aren't they being taxed at a different rate? Because they're actually benefiting of us being closed. How is that an equitable situation? Uh, yeah, good, uh, good question. Uh, Franco, do you have a view of that? Oh, yeah. I mean, lots to unpack there. So um, first, I just want to acknowledge, like, Larry and many business owners, they have been impacted severely by unfair government policies um, in, 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 frankly, many different provinces. So I think we have to acknowledge that the government has made life um, hard, but also unfair for certain businesses in certain sectors in certain provinces. Um, Now, a few things that I just want to unpack. One from um, the other panelists at the Chamber of Commerce, I think he made a great point to to just underscore the fact that, look, there is a lot of issues. It's very complex. There's not one reason why there's a labor shortage, right? We have to remember that. But on the on the other hand, it, it also doesn't take a PhD in economics to understand that if you pay people not to work, fewer people will work. And the CRB is dished <laughs> out about 300 bucks a week. So you can understand that if you're someone who is maybe a little bit unsatisfied with your job, maybe thinking about other types of job prospects, well, if you're earning near that money, well, you can understand why maybe they would take the taxpayer money rather than put on their work boots. Um, and, and, and so when we think about recovering Canada's economy, we're not going to get the economy firing in all cylinders again um, until we stop having our government outbid small businesses for workers. So that's all I want to say on the CRB part. In terms of this different types of taxation, I would disagree in terms of using the tax system to go after those businesses, because guess what? I would rather have those profits within those businesses so that they can expand operations, so that, they, so that we can attract investment, so that they can get more Canadians back to work. What I will say, though, and I, and I think this ties into some of the grievances that Larry legitimately is pointing out, is I would say, and you know what, the NDP actually brought this up in the last federal election, for the businesses that have taken one of these uh, subsidies from the federal government and turned around and paid out bonuses to, 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 to their C-suite, well, that's yes. not right. And they should, be, they should be required to pay that money back. So I guess a little bit of a different Air Canada still acknowledging those struggles. Okay, um, we are going to say goodbye to Larry and bring in another uh, a restaurant owner, a different type of restaurant. Larry, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? No, I think I've said everything for today. Thank you, Libby. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you, Larry. We appreciate it, too. All right, let us take a couple of calls. Pat in Toronto. Hello, Pat. Hi, Libby. This is a very, very slippery slope. Um, as a former politician, I know far too well how easy it is for politicians to give away other people's money. And uh, they don't, most politicians don't understand anything about finance or anything about government uh, finances, which is even more confusing. And if we do this, we're going to set a precedent. What will be the next dilemma that we're faced? We're going to have to bail that person out. Um, I am very concerned uh, if we do this, uh, that we're setting ourselves up, that we're going to have to help out everybody who has a loss. Mm. Well, we've already, uh, we've already done that, I think. Pat, thanks for your call. Okay, and I am going to bring in Alida Solomon, chef and owner of Tutti Mati in Toronto. Hi, Alida. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? I'm holding up. <laughs> okay, so um, we are still trying to make sense of the new uh, measures, but it, it, what they're doing is getting rid of the old wage subsidy, and now for people with deep losses, you get 10% support for a 50% loss, 50% support for a 75% loss. Uh, how does that sound to you in your business? I think that people have forgotten that for almost 400 days that restaurants um, were with we're not able to serve customers um, and we just need some time to recover. I think what people we're not asking for a handout, what we're asking for is help um, and some proper guidance on how to navigate two years of loss. 
Um, you know, at a lot, the government has done their best to reach out to large business, such as the airlines, um, as well as uh, corporate businesses. But for us in the hospitality industry um, and small business, they've really just forgotten about us. We've had vir- virtually no guidance about how to um, move forward. And a lot of us, especially in the downtown core, don't have our lunch crowds anymore because a lot of the offices are empty. So we're expected to pay full rent on spaces that are, are lar- were, were once filled with people are now only open, you know, four, three or four days a week. Well, yeah, that's a very good point. And I'm just looking here on the notes that I took. So there's, there is a more generous benefit for tourism recovery, but I don't know if a, a restaurant like yours could qualify as tourism, even though I'm sure you get a lot of tourists or got yep. a lot of tourists. Yeah, we used to. I mean, we are in Adelaide. We are in Adelaide and Sedina right downtown. Um, so we were one of the first businesses that was hit immediately because um, we are one of the only restaurants left down, down on Adelaide. The rest is mostly offices. So we relied heavily on our lunch crowd. Um, and we made jokes that, you know, that our lunch crowd paid our rent and the rest was, you know, you know, cover your labor and your food costs and everything else. But we haven't had a lunch crowd in two years. Um, and we've been open now um, indoors for, I think, since um, they've allowed us, I think it was May when we started to allow, or I think it was May, that yep. we started to do outdoor patios. And we still don't have a lunch crowd. Like I'm down here pretty much from 9 a.m. every day. Um, and I live one block from the restaurant. So I've, I've been watching the traffic. Um, there's an architecture firm next door to us that had 240 architects. And currently there's only six people in the office. So Do they come for lunch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I put a barbecue out for them in the summer so that I, <laughs> so that I could actually, you know, we were doing, you know, small amounts of money, but I, I didn't know what to do. Like we're, a lot of us are just lost. Um, and I had said from the beginning that we in the hospitality industry would start to feel around November the squeeze, um, and still and still not able to recover. But so do I, do you have a sense of what percentage you're back to your normal? We used to be open um, five lunches and six dinners a week, uh, closed only on Sundays, and we are only open right now Wednesday to Saturday for dinner because we we can't. There's not enough business downtown. Right, but so, what percentage of your previous business are you? Do you have? I'd say I'd say we're back to, um, I'd say probably like thirty percent. Oh, that's 30%. tough. Yeah, like in the summer, it was phenomenal because we had a patio and people came down, and we were actually totally fine. Uh, but now that we're back inside at half capacity, we're a restaurant that used to seat eighty-five people, and technically we can only seat forty. So, and we don't have our lunch anymore. So I, we just can't. It's, it's, you know, we're, all of us are very, very worried, um, especially in the downtown core about what, what we're going to do to try and pay big rent, um, in order to move forward. Um, that's, that sounds really tough. And, you know, it, downtown, you can, you know, uh, uh, roll a, 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 ba- a ball through downtown and yeah. the traffic's bad, but uh, I don't really see people <laughs> there. And, and, uh, now I'm thinking about the path. I mean, that's deserted. Yeah, it's, you know, my partner who works at Wellington and Bay uh, is back in his office one day a week, um, you know, and I, I get the occasional knock on the window from some regulars who are in their offices who say they'd like to come down, but I wish I could open for them, but I just don't have the staff even to be able to open um, the way that we were in the past. Well, yeah, that's really tough. Uh, Daniel, um, what do you say about that? Uh, do you think that, um, I mean, again, the tourism recovery provision here is better. It's 40% for 40% revenue loss. But, but again, I, I don't think that restaurants are in there. I, I mean, uh, only speculating here, it, it certainly doesn't sound like it. And, you know, that the story that uh, Alita is telling here it is a heartbreaking one. And I think what makes it even worse is that it's not unique to her. Um, it is something that businesses across the board in downtown Toronto are experiencing. And you, you don't have to do anything more than anecdotally go, go down, walk down King street uh, or queen street or Dundas where the chamber of commerce is located. Uh, it is, um, you know, a lot of closed stores and a lot of restaurants that have not made it through to the other side. And 
those that are hanging on in those situations are many of them are just barely hanging on. And so, um, we appreciate that, that, that the, these benefits cannot continue on indefinitely and, and that we need to open the proverbial policy toolbox and, and look at these additional options, particularly as it relates to, you know, getting Canadians back into the workforce. But it needs to be done with evidence-based analysis. And, 100%. 100%. Yeah, you know, and, I, and it, it's interesting. I mean, I know that uh, uh, Christian Freeland consulted with people, and I've seen, like, for instance, there was... Uh, Franco, there was a report that came out this week, an analysis, and it showed a number of things basically saying that the, the, the subsidies, you know, there were people who were able to take advantage of the subsidies, the cost of every job that was saved cost $25,000, uh, basically making the argument that, that these measures were not needed anymore. And, and then you hear Alita's story, Franco. Oh, and it's, it's, I really feel so bad for, for Alita's story and really all Canadian uh, business owners, small business owners who have done everything right, right? They save their money, they put it away, they invest in their community, they get people back to work, and they've been decimated over the last decimated. 18, 19 months. And, and right. I feel so bad. I really do. Um, but, you know, one other thing that I think we do need to acknowledge, too, just from the taxpayer perspective, is that um, and I'm not saying businesses don't understand this. I know they do. Um, I'm just very worried. We, we're a trillion dollars in debt. We see this cost of living going through the roof. And all of this money is, is going to have to be paid back to, to Ottawa. They're going to come after businesses. They're going to come after uh, taxpayers for this money eventually, right? So we, we have to remember that um, because, of course, all of this extra money has to be paid for by taxpayers one way or another. Um, now, one thing I want to bring up, too, is is talking about the wage subsidy. There have been um, loopholes in there that need to be fixed and need to be addressed. And, and one of them that we haven't talked about today is how political parties um, took advantage of the wage, wage subsidy. These political parties in Canada already received special taxpayer treatment, yet they shoved their snouts further into the taxpayer trough and helped themselves to the wage subsidy that was meant for struggling small business owners. Huh. You know what? That is a subject for another segment and another day on Fight Back. And uh, we're basically already out of time, but I'm going to give the last word to Alida. I just want to, I just want to let people know that all of us in the hospitality industry have fought the last two years to stay open because we love what we do. And I didn't, in the last two years, most of it alone, in the restaurant to be abandoned by the government when I, we are all taxpayers. They've almost forgotten that our taxpaying dollar doesn't matter. And we're not looking for a handout. What we're looking for is assistance to get back on our feet because all of us just want to go back to work. I'm not looking to go home and sit on my couch. I really just want to go back to work. And I really want the government to understand that you can't abandon an industry that fills the heart of the city. Alida, uh, I don't know what to say. All the best to you. You know, we, we feel for you and, and your situation is really tough. Thank you uh, for thank you. sharing your story. And thank you also, Franco Terrazano and Daniel Safayeni. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye. We are going to take a break and uh, heartbreaking topic when we come back. Th- there have been four fatal crashes uh, in the last just over a week. Terrible, tragic stories. And we're going to try to find out what the heck is going on. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.